1: Oh, hello everyone, this is Shu Wang. Welcome, on, welcome back to New Books Network. Today I feel very happy to invite Dr. Wucho Mukherjee to join us to, in, to, to talk about his newest book, Race, Class, Parenting and Children's Nature. So the first question I want to ask Dr. Mukerji is, is to invite you to introduce yourself to our audience.
0: Yes, uh, first of all, thank you Shu for having me. Um, I'm very delighted to be here. My name is Dr. Utishu Mukherjee. I am based at Brunel University in London. And I work primarily in the area of sociology, but I'm based in the Department of
1: Education. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much for your brief for your self-introduction. So for the next question, I'm wondering why you're interested in this very interesting, I mean, subject or field, children's leisure.
0: Yes, so it, I came to it uh, because when I looked at uh, some of the major changes that were taking place in the way children live their daily lives, both in the UK, but also across Europe and North America more broadly, where a large part of children's waking hours are now spent in various kinds of after-school activities and various screen-based leisure activities. And these shifts are quite seemed quite interesting to me as a sociologist, So when I looked at some of the major quantitative longitudinal studies that have been done to document the way children spend their time over over the last few decades, there's been a marked shift in these uh, time use patterns. So for example, children today spend much more of their time indoors than they did some decades ago. They're less likely to play outdoors unsupervised by adults. They're more likely, of course, to use handheld devices to have screen-based leisure practices. But they're also more likely to be involved in various kinds of organized activities, which are often paid for and scheduled into their daily routines. And this has also meant that a huge industry has come up, which caters specifically to children's leisure needs, if you like. And that has that is not an insignificant part of the economy. So I, when I was looking at these trends, uh, that really prompted me to think about the reasons that underpin these changes in the way children spend their daily lives and the role that leisure plays in the reproduction of social inequalities. And which is why I wanted to do a more qualitative, in-depth work looking at what prompts parents to send their children to various kinds of organized activities and what does leisure look like in the daily lives of children in the UK. And also to think about how children experience these leisure activities and the meanings they create around their own leisure participation. And that led to the project that I capture in my recently published monograph that you mentioned at the beginning.
1: Thank so much for your answer. So now let's turn to your book. Um, my first question is that I want to invite you to talk about the critical sociology of children's leisure, which draw on the current debate within leisure studies as well as childhood studies, and forge the conceptual, um, I'm sorry, conceptual ground for critical analysis of a middle class British Indian children's leisure geographies.
0: Right. So, when I started off doing this piece of research, um, I came across two blocks of literature, if you like. There was one block of literature within leisure studies, which is this interdisciplinary field devoted to the study of leisure, largely dominated by the social sciences. And in that field, When researchers have talked about children and children's leisure, they have done so mostly through the lens of developmental psychology and there's a very prescriptive approach to leisure that what children should or should not do, what is a good form of leisure, what is a bad form of leisure, and so on. There was very little engagement with critical frameworks or looking at children's rights, children's agency and thinking about how children's leisure is constructed um, in a particular time and place. On the other hand, in childhood studies, which is all about thinking from the lives of children, being child-focused in our scholarship, a relatively recent field which grew up in late 1980s, early 1990s, and which is all about centering children's voices in research, And when childhood scholars talked about leisure, they did so without actually having any conversation with leisure studies or drawing on leisure theories or situating children's leisure in the broad framework of leisure in society. So I was quite struck by how these two fields were developing scholarship on leisure, on children's leisure, but having very little conversation with each other. And my aim, therefore, was to bridge these two fields and develop what I call a critical sociological framework for the study of children's leisure that draws on and contributes to both these fields, that is of childhood studies and leisure studies. And I think that's a very important work to do because that not only makes the study of children's leisure much more exciting and rich, but also it potentially has impact on both fields and their development. So in this chapter, what I do is draw on existing debates and empirical work on children's leisure and create a map of three different genres of children's leisure, which is prevalent among um among children in the global north, definitely, and also in other parts of the world. So I identified three particular kinds of forms of leisure that dominate the lives of children. One is what I call organized or structured leisure activities. And a lot of research has has been done on this, about how a lot of children spend their after-school hours in these organized activities, which are supervised by adults, which are paid for privately by parents. Uh, more often than not. And these are scheduled quite meticulously into children's daily routines. And research on this has shown a clear class divide where middle-class parents are much more likely and much more able to invest in their children's um, leisure lives in, uh, through these organized activities, which can often also serve as avenues of child care and and engage children in the time between the end of school hours and when their parents might be able to pick them up. So that's one genre that I I talk about in this chapter. And second one is family leisure, something that leisure scholars have talked about quite a bit. And this is about cross-generational leisure activities, leisure involving parents and children, uh, children with other children, usually siblings. So multiple generations within families engaged in various kinds of joint activities and creating meaning, creating uh, family bonds through these shared activities. That's the second form of leisure I look at. And the third one is what uh, Robert Stevens, a sociologist of leisure, calls casual leisure. So these are forms of leisure, such as uh, solitary leisure, you know, leisure of what I call leisure of one's own, things like play, things like digital leisure, also various kinds of ad hoc leisure opportunities that children create by themselves, which cannot be categorized either as an organized activity or a family leisure. So this is kind of this motley crew of various kinds of heterogeneous leisure activities that are grouped within these uh, I mean, the umbrella of casual leisure. So in this chapter, therefore, I present, if you like, a, a schema for studying children's leisure across these three genres. And more than just fitting various children's activities into these boxes, I'm interested in thinking about how they're interconnected, how one form of leisure um, impacts another form of leisure, and also other aspects of children's daily life, such as their school time, parents' own um, time negotiations, and so on. So when you look at kind of current scholarship on this, you see there's a lot of emphasis on how middle-class parents are thinking strategically about their children's leisure and investing in forms of leisure that they think are going to accrue certain benefits in terms of building children's Uh, cultural resources, expanding their social circles, and really adding value to their future CVs so they are in the front of the back when it comes to getting into selective universities and securing top careers in the future. And this has been described as a particularly middle-class approach to child rearing, where leisure plays a central role. An American sociologist, Annette LaRue, uh, describes this as concerted cultivation, where parents take mm-hmm. a very strategic approach to develop the talents and skills of their children in a concerted fashion through quite a significant investment into after-school activities. And she point, uh, pins it down to issues of class and how class advantages are reproduced through leisure. I wanted to Look specifically at racialized middle classes, such as um, middle class Indian families in the UK, and think about how not only class but also race has a role to play in this regard. So, in the empirical work that I have done in this book, it's very much about using a joint lens of race and class to think about how these various genres of leisure play out in these families and how race and class inequalities make tracks within children's leisure spaces.
1: Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So for the question, I'm wondering about the leisure-based parenting strategies insofar as middle-class British Indian children's organized leisure schedule is concerned.
0: Yes, um, I think it kind of flows from what I was just telling you Um uh, about the current state of the field and a lot of research on middle class parenting especially in the uk has been done with largely white middle class parents where issues of race ethnicity and racism have either been downplayed or not been looked at at all and the idea is that when you're looking at middle class child rearing practices it's all about class reproduction it's about how these parents are able to play the various, you know, education market and secure what we call positional advantage for their children. And of course, which means because these are limited resources in society, it means that if you corner those advantages for your children, other children, usually from more disadvantaged backgrounds, do not have access to these spaces and resources, which is a very important area of inquiry in its own right. But in the last few decades, there has been a steady increase in the number of racialized middle classes in the UK. And researchers have begun to think about racialized middle classes and how race and class are interlocked in their experiences. So I will focus specifically on middle-class British Indians. And British Indians have been particularly noticeable in their their kind of performance, if you like, on key indicators, such as educational attainment, in um, securing top careers and earnings. So I wanted to then focus on how middle-class British Indian parents think about and enact forms of what LaRue calls concerted cultivation, but I wanted to look at it through the lens of both race and class. So when I did this research and spoke to various middle-class British Indian parents living in and around London, I found that yes, leisure is very central to how they strategize and enact their parenting strategies. It's both about selecting You know best performing schools for their children but it's also about selecting and enrolling their children into specific forms of after-school activities or structured leisure pursuits and however for these middle class parents these after-school activities were not only about class reproduction which laro talks about But it's also about what I call ethnic and racial socialization of their children. And I'll I'll expand what I mean. So certain types of after-school activities are selected, and children are kind of enrolled into this so that they can acquire dominant forms of cultural capital through these activities and expand their middle class circles and can acquire the kinds of competencies and skills that are that are coveted in a white majority middle-class space in Britain. And parents talked at length about how children can acquire various kinds of soft skills, various kinds of behavioral competencies through these leisure avenues. But alongside this, it's another group of activities which have some sort of meaningful connection to their Indian heritage. And through these activities, the parents attempt to transmit forms of what I call ethnic cultural capital. So forms of uh, cultural resources linked to their Indian background through after-school activities. So this can involve various kinds of um, Indian music and dance lessons, language lessons linked to their family language, for example. Mm -hmm. And these are activities that the parents see as avenues for their children to um, acquire cultural capital that are embedded in their ethnic uh, and racial uh, background and family um, contexts. And also, for these parents, it's about racism in various contexts. So children often experience forms of racism in leisure spaces that then prompt conversation between parents and children about race and racism. In some cases, in one case in particular, I had a parent whose child was bullied at school and in response, the parent enrolled them into um, self-defense classes to make sure that they're prepared if they are to face various kinds of racist violence in the future. So experiences of racism were prompting parents to select particular after-school activities that are seen as vehicles of kind of anti-racism in a way so these are the kind of um, issues that this particular chapter deals with how parents racial as middle-class parents enact constitute cultivation in ways that both reproduce class advantage but also it's about reproducing ethnic and racial identities Through after school
1: activities. Thank you so much for your answer. So, for another question, I want to invite you to talk about children's lived experience and understanding of their own leisure schedules to reflect on the way leisure mandates their engagement with the world around those children.
0: Yes. Um, One of the
1: things that did strike
0: me when I was looking at existing research in children's leisure. Um, not least Laru's work, but also other research on on this topic, is that often children's voices are missing from this uh, body of work. Often researchers go and talk to parents, for example, to understand how children spend their daily lives and their leisure time, but with very little input from children themselves. So one of the things that was really central to the way I wanted to do this piece of work was to actually go and talk to children themselves. So part of the empirical work for this project was about interviewing parents, observing um leisure spaces, and then interacting with children. So I interviewed children one-to-one. I also did some, some drawing activities, some participatory draw and talk activities with the children as a form of data collection. Um, sort of method. So when I spoke to the children, I wanted to understand what uh, meaning they create around their own leisure engagements Mm -hmm. and what significance does leisure have in their everyday geographies. So what I talk about in this chapter are some of the idioms, some of the ways in which children make sense of their leisure geographies. And also about some of their experiences of leisure spaces. So I call this chapter fun and boring and leisure name and racist name-calling because I found that when I was talking to children about these various activities, which activity that they which activities they choose, which activity they they avoid, and how they go about this. It was clear that that in these middle class Indian families, very few activities are actually imposed on children, and there has been some work done previously looking at how middle-class parents tend to adopt a language of negotiation when it comes to interacting with their children, and which prepares their and their children to be, to, to, to interact with adults with more confidence and be able to negotiate their way rather than just being recipients of diktats and um, instructions. So there's there's a lot of negotiation that goes around how particular leisure activities are selected. And that I found in my conversation with parents as well. But when I spoke to children, it seems almost all of them drew on this language of fun and boring. And And I draw on the sociology of boredom in this chapter as well, and the political role that this idiom of fun and boring play. So children said, okay, I want to do this because it seemed fun, or I tried it. I did this tester session and it seemed fun. And the other activity, I tried it, but it was boring, so I left. So activities are are selected and jettisoned. So I describe it as a marketplace of leisure. Right. So these children know that they have significant amount of financial and other forms of resources at their disposal. Their parents definitely do. And, and they have all these options in the marketplace of pleasure. And it's about playing the marketplace of pleasure and selecting and jettisoning activities at will, depending on what fits your own interests and temperament and, and um, what you want to get out of it, really. So this, this, this spectrum, if you like, of fun and boring, so things can be a bit fun, a little boring, and so on. So this language of fun and boring plays quite a central role in how children go about this selection process, how they consume, if you like, the options that are available to them in the marketplace of pleasure. And as I said, it's quite a significant industry, leisure industry in uh, Britain, and also in many parts of um, the world today. But alongside this, I also in this talk about the racist name calling, which is kind of a shorthand for talking about various kind of racist encounters that children spoke to me about, and how racial boundaries are constructed within children's leisure spaces. So if we think of children's leisure spaces as interactive spaces, where children are interacting with other children, and leisure meanings are being negotiated and constructed, race plays quite a significant role in fracturing these spaces. And children would come up come up, up against various racist uh, incidents, name-calling by other uh, children, and in many of these instances, children actually took action, so they would go and speak to their teachers if, if it happened in a school playground, or talk to their parents. And it's about also repositioning uh, children as agents in their daily lives, rather than simply as people, you know, at the receiving end of racist uh, encounters. It's about what children are doing in these leisure spaces when faced with various kinds of uh, racial slurs for example. So I look at how race and class fracture children's leisure geographies, how children use various language, various um, idioms to make sense of that leisure geography and what they do when they face various kinds of um, negative encounters in these leisure geographies.
1: Thank you so much for answering again. So, for the next question, I'm wondering about how you adopt a temporal lens to explore time issue in participating families with us leisure.
0: Yes, um, I think time is quite a significant factor when it comes to leisure, and often people talk about leisure as free time, right? So, the language of time is all around it. Family leisure is often people are are less likely to use the term family leisure. They're more likely to talk about family time or quality time, time with loved ones and so on. So the language of time is ever present when it comes to talking about leisure, talking about children's leisure, adult leisure and so on. And so therefore, i was i was I was interested in looking at leisure in the lives of these children and their families through a temporal lens. And in this chapter, I talk about how time issues are manifested in the context of uh, children's and families' leisure. And I look at three dimensions, three manifestations of time. I look at uh, family time and how this family time is negotiated, both in the context of um, parents' work schedules, but also children's school timing and after-school leisure um, lesson timings. How these three different um, timetables are negotiated to create opportunities for family leisure. So that's one thing I look at. Second manifestation of time I found in this family's vis-a-vis leisure was around screen time which is quite a crucial factor these days and lots of um you know public policy pronouncements media conversations are geared towards telling parents that they must take charge of their children's screen time regulate screen time and that you know it's it's really bad if children spend long hours with screen based um in screen based activities and these must be regulated and the responsibility lie with parents so, I, so the second manifestation of time I found in those families was around this language of screen time, both how they are being regulated, how parents think about and attempt to regulate screen time, but also how children navigate uh, these regulations and create opportunities for screen time and so on. So the second manifestation of time I um, capture in this book, in this chapter, And the third manifestation of time is around alone time, or the idea of what I call leisure of one's own, solitary leisure. Leisure spaces where other human leisure actors are not present, but children construct leisure opportunities in concert with other material and non-human agents of leisure. So this can be toys, books, music, and so on. And these various manifestations of time or dimensions of time vis-a-vis leisure are also shot through particular materialities, spaces, and relationships that I comment on in this book in terms of how they, for example, family time family time, or um, is, is very much about creating memories and negotiating family relationships, uh, family bonds, but also how external factors such as, you know, work-related burnout of parents impact upon this family time, how work schedules of parents, work schedules of time or school timings of children and after-school activity timings of children uh, work as an external factor to how family time is made possible or not. So I look at these kind of three manifestations of time and how they are shot through spaces, relationships, and materialities.
1: So, thank you so much for your answer again. <clears throat> Sorry. So, for last question, I have a little bit of long question. So, I'm wondering. I, I mean, I'm wondering. what do you talk about how leisure practices mediate children's social relationship with other around the land, as well as a me- me- mechanisms through which community-based British Indian leisure arrangements direct place making within urban multicultural of Great London, and reinforce the role of a diasporatic de- group as agents for city-making and the transformation of urban society, uh, sorry, societies. Sorry, mm-hmm. socialities.
0: Yeah, so uh, this this is what I call kind of the politics of leisuring. And the key idea here is that a lot of work on leisure, especially children's leisure, becomes quite individualist in its lens. So, okay, it's about individual children doing specific things with specific benefits or um, negative impact on them. So it's a very individualized approach to both how leisure is studied, but also to how it was a very, very framework that is used. It's a very individualist approach in much of the research, and that has to do with kind of how developmental psychology seems to have an impact on, on children's leisure literature. So I wanted to move away from that. I wanted to see leisure as not just individual choices with individual um, impacts, but as a particular social phenomenon. And with that, what impact it has that is beyond just individual benefits or outcomes to something a bit more interpersonal and social. And this chapter kind of captures some of that and there are as you said, I look at both forms of relationships that are that are nurtured, developed through leisure. So I talk about friendships as relationships of play where a lot of these children, see leisure as an opportunity not only to make friends but also to nurture those friendships and this actually applies as much to offline games as they do for online games because many of these online games are now played you know in a synchronous way online uh, you know live where children might be in their respective homes but they might be meeting in a similar online space to play a particular game so it becomes so play, various forms of place and leisure more broadly is quite crucial to how relationships are nurtured. So, I look at that, but also I look at placemaking, which is a much more community based um, approach to leisure, where various kinds of leisure spaces. And in this um, chapter, I give examples of things like the Diwali that's celebrated in Trafalgar Square in London, or various kinds of um, Religious and ethnic festivals that are held across London, where spaces that are that are dominated by white majority British um, sort of people or or like have particular kinds of histories linked to them, are re-inscribed through these collective acts of measure. Right, so it can be a space that has been you know that has particular histories linked to British military conquests and. It's about the kind of institutionally white spaces, but then, as a community, when when various kinds of Indian groups meet and partake in various kinds of pleasure activities which are collective, which are which are community based, those spaces are transformed, however momentarily, into vehicles of you know of um, of community of so. I talk about it in terms of placemaking, how various spaces are transformed into spaces of, of community solidarity and of building ethnic social networks. And this reinscription of urban spaces through collective acts of pleasure by diasporic groups, by racialized um, groups, I think is, is a quite an important implication or consequence of leisure practices that we cannot capture solely through an individualized lens or understanding of leisure. So this chapter is about capturing those aspects of leisure that go beyond the individual, beyond just individual um, benefits and um, outcomes, to thinking about its impact on larger social and cultural geographies,
1: of the city and beyond. So, thanks so much for your answer again. So, at the end of our talk today, <clears throat> I want to directly talk to our audience. So, um, I want to say, as a gender and the children's history, while I very enjoy the experience of, I mean, the process of reading Dr. Mukherjee's news book, Race, Class, Parenting, and Children's Asia, while I was, I'm not like a specialist in either, I mean, British Indian children's experience, uh, their past and present, or I mean, Indian history or British history. But I want to say, I still learn a lot from this book, or this fantastic book, um, to interpreting nature, especially children's nature, from the sociological perspective. So personally speaking, I highly recommend anybody any of our audience who is the strongest, with strongest in either, I mean, uh, children's leisure or I mean, I mean, British Indian immigrants, or un- any other related topic, you need to come. You you must buy a copy of this fantastic book and read it. Uh, it you have time. It's an amazing book. You must, and I trust me, you must learn a lot and take a lot of insight from reading this fantastic book. So thank you so much, Dr. Curdy, to join us to talk uh, to share his research, to introduce his fantastic book. I want to say again, repeat the title of this fantastic book, Race Class parenting and the children's leisure so thank you so much for listening to our podcast today thank you